Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. So on this Communion Sunday, taking time to just focus on this particular passage, Matthew 26, verses 30 through 35. Hear God's word. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. As much as we would like to think that all of the time we are becoming stronger and stronger as Christians, the truth of the matter is that strength comes when we know that in ourselves we are weak. The strong Christian is the one who knows that he cannot trust himself. The one who knows that he cannot put down his guard for even a second or he will fall into sin. The strong Christian knows better than to relax in the middle of battle. Nevertheless, my guess is that you would like to think, and perhaps you even believe that one day you're going to reach a point where you are on this this spiritual plane in your life where you will be able to coast along with hardly any effort. You'd like to think that you are at a point where you are or will be exempt from the sins of others. More specifically, you imagine that you would never deny the Lord, never contradict his word, never be ashamed to be called by his name. You might think that you would never do this or that, but yet left to yourself, left to ourselves, because this includes myself, we would fall into these things. Your sinful nature, my sinful nature is capable of doing anything. For instance, don't ever say, I will never deny the Lord. I will stand up for the Lord no matter what. You may have the best intentions of the world, but you may end up eating those words, I am afraid. Portraits of Faithful Saints, a book by Herman Hanko. It's a book that takes us back in history, and we, it offers a survey of the various lives of saints in the Church of Christ. And what stands out about many of them is their undying determination to stand up for what they believe. They refuse to compromise their convictions. They stand fast for Christ even in the face of dire consequences, including death. I would guess that most of you have read of such, of, of such saints, including right in Scripture itself, the stoning of Stephen. And have you ever wondered what you would do if you were facing death for professing Christ? And what if, what if all you had to do was renounce Christ and you would be set free? All you have to do is deny Christ. You wouldn't even have to mean the words you would say. All you would have to do is just say a few words against Christ And you would be able to go home to mom and dad, husband or wife, brother, sister, to your friends. Many have faced that kind of a situation, and it would be very easy for them to be thinking to themselves in that situation, well, does God really want me to die and to leave my friends and family behind and have to put them through all of this grief when I could very easily live and even continue to serve the Lord? All I have to do is just outwardly 
in a rather simple way, deny Christ. Or maybe you have the bold and courageous attitude, I would be one of those who would gladly go to my death for Christ. Now, if you say that, I hope it's true. Indeed, the Christian who says that may be completely sincere, and yet I highly doubt that it would be as easy as you imagine. I highly doubt that many of us would have the devotion to Christ in that kind of situation as we think we would. And the reason I say that is because I know what the Bible teaches about our sinful human nature, but also because in our simple, easy lives of virtually no persecution, we already deny Christ in our own ways. How often does the Holy Spirit prompt you to say something to someone about spiritual matters and you are too timid to do it? You are afraid of people's reactions, even in merely talking to them about Christ and salvation. In another scenario, you are afraid to speak out against something, something sinful that's going on that others are trying to involve you in. And you wonder what people will do or say if you make, you, if, if you make it known that you are a Christian faithful, trying to, to follow Christ. You can imagine them laughing, maybe even getting mad. They might say something hurtful. The things they might do fill your minds. And so you put off what you would like to say for another time. And you say, I'm not denying Christ. I'm simply waiting for a better opportunity for ministry. How afraid we are of man, of someone's disapproving look, of someone's mocking laugh, of being the brunt of someone's joke, of being alone. On the other hand, how good it feels to be liked and approved by others, to have them welcome us with a smile and to belong. I wonder if we would be those faithful unto death. I think it's a legitimate question, because why would we when we are not faithful in the little things? The ironic thing is that the weaker you are, Actually, the stronger you imagine yourself to be. In the text before us, we see that, just like we tend to do, the disciples have a very high view of themselves. Now, it's true that we can look back to the apostles as, in many ways, model believers, and many of them ended up being faithful unto death. They unflinchingly endured many hardships and persecutions for their Lord, but understand they were not that way immediately. And we're certainly not that way in this point in history in which our text is dealing. They became bold for Christ after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. And they became that way also in part because of the lessons that were occasioned by the Lord's words to them here in this text. In this text, these disciples have a very high view of themselves as strong, as loyal, as brave, as true. Meanwhile, Jesus knew what they were really like, and history proves that Jesus was right. The disciples ate humble pie, and that in part is what enabled them to reach a real point of strength as disciples. They came to see that all boasting in self is vain, and all boasting and trust must be in the Lord Jesus Christ, because that is where true spiritual strength comes from. The setting of our text is that Jesus and the disciples have just finished the Passover meal, which included toward the end, Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. And it was rather late in the evening when Jesus and the disciples left the upper room for the Mount of Olives. 
And Jesus, knowing exactly what was going to happen in the next few hours, told his disciples, you will all fall away, or perhaps your translation reads, you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus was telling them, to use another translation, this very night, all of you shall become untrue to me. The word translated fall away comes from the Greek word that sounds like the English word scandal. And it's a word that speaks of stumbling. It, it speaks of, of doing something that is offensive to others, to be enticed into sin. It has a number of different nuances. The uh, noun form of the verb refers to actually a bait stick in a trap or a snare. And the word scandalize thus brings to mind being snared or tempted to sin, enticed, led astray. The word also carries the idea of distrusting and and deserting one who ought to be trusted and obey, this idea of being untrue. So putting all of this together, we have a better idea of what Jesus says here to his disciples and what the, about what they're going to do. They are going to be offended at Jesus. They're going to be ashamed of him. They are going to act like he is a terrible person as though they disapprove of him. And in so doing, they are going to sin. And they're going to have this wrong attitude and do these wrong things because they will have been enticed into sin. They, they will become trapped and ensnared in this sin of denying Christ the sin of being untrue to him. Their own selfish desires and fears will prove to be their undoing. And you see, Jesus, as the divine son of God in his omniscience, saw all of this happening in the future as clearly as though he was watching a pre-recorded television show. It was something planned by God. In fact, what the disciples were about to do was in direct fulfillment of prophecy. Going back to Zechariah 13.7, just read a few moments ago. Uh, Zechariah 13.7 is a verse which Jesus quotes to his disciples, and he quotes it as speaking to this history that is about to unfold. It says there, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The disciples' unfaithfulness, this scattering, uh, as terribly sinful as it was and as responsible as they were for it, was ordained by God. Zechariah 13 The prophet, speaking God's word, declares judgment upon idolatrous Israel. He speaks of a judgment that is going to separate his remnant from the rest of the nation, a judgment meant in the end then to deliver his elect people from their idolatry and save them. And when we come to verse 7 there in Zechariah 13, the verse that the Lord quotes, we find God declaring through his prophet a rather odd thing. God calls for judgment against his shepherd. We read there, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. If we study the Hebrew, we learn that this one the Lord calls his shepherd is himself divine. He's called the companion of God. And this is an expression that Hebrew Hebrew scholars tell us cannot refer to any Mere human shepherd. It could be translated, my associate, the mighty man of my union, even the mighty man equal to me. It refers to someone who is divine, and yet this divine shepherd of God is also called a man. So we have here in this passage the mystery of the 
incarnation, the passage foretelling the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who as the Son of God would be God come in the flesh. And though Zechariah doesn't say directly that God is going to strike his shepherd, the sense of the passage certainly is that God has planned, he has ordained this striking of his shepherd. It certainly indicates that God is behind this striking. And then now when Jesus quotes this passage, we learn that God is the one, indeed, who will strike his shepherd. Jesus quotes Zechariah 13.7 with God saying through his prophet, I will strike the shepherd. Zechariah verse 7 and following, 13 verse 7 and following is a, is a prophecy of how God's shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, will suffer at the hand of God himself. And Isaiah 53 clearly brings out this very same truth when it speaks of the Messiah being smitten by God and afflicted. It says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to death. From God's sovereign, eternal point of view, he is the one who killed Jesus. God struck his own son. And this is an astonishing thing, but it's a truth that is at the very heart of the gospel. We understand that Jesus did not die because wicked men finally had captured him and were having their way with him. Jesus didn't die as a victim. And I've preached on this many times, but it's an absolutely vital point we need to understand that Jesus' death was not an ordinary kind of death. But he died for sinners by God's own plan. Jesus was the sacrifice for sin that God was offering on the altar of his own justice. God gave his only begotten son to the death of the cross so that we could be delivered from our sins. And so Jesus' death was God's idea. God, out of pure grace, hurt his own son so that we could be set free from sin and its eternal consequences. And that is exactly what Zechariah foretold. He foretold a shepherd being struck, of the sheep being scattered, but that in the end, salvation would result. For though the sheep are scattered, there in Zechariah's prophecy, the Lord goes on to speak of his one-third, this, this remnant of grace, that in the end, through this scattering, is renewed spiritually. And they call upon Jehovah as their God. And so Jesus is now telling us here in the book of Matthew that Zechariah's prophecy of the scattering of the sheep includes this scattering of his 11 disciples as they are going to turn away from him. They're going to abandon him, uh, fleeing in all directions from him. And this will literally take place in but a few hours. And furthermore, just as Zechariah prophesied, the purpose of this scattering was not to destroy these disciples, but to purify them, to make them the kind of disciples God wanted them to be. And just like we see in Zechariah, the ultimate purpose of this scattering then is salvation. The shepherd is struck, the sheep are scattered, that in the end God will have people devoted to him in love. And indeed, we see the Lord right away revealing his love when knowing full well that they're going to forsake him. What does he say to them? He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Even though they are going to deny him, Jesus is not done with them. 
He's telling them, in essence, you are going to do this terrible thing. You're going to be offended at me. You're going to deny me. This is all part, though, of God's plan, a plan that in the end is going to result in your spiritual good, a plan for you in the end to love me in response to my love for you. I will eventually be raised from the dead, and I will meet up with you in Galilee. And uh, they would only later recall these words and understand the grace of the Lord in them. But for now, the disciples are insistent that the Lord is wrong about them. Out of everything that Jesus has said, including another prediction of his death and resurrection, all they can seemingly hear is what the Lord has said about them. And all they can think about is defending their loyal character. Peter, as the group's spokesman, is the most outspoken of them, is sadly not out of character when he blurts out, though they all fall away or all are made to stumble because of you, I will never fall away. Let's consider for a moment these words of Peter and how we can be just like him. First of all, Peter is flatly contradicting what Jesus is saying. He's arguing with Jesus. Jesus has just said, you will fall away. And Peter says in response, no, I won't. You're wrong. And he actually says, I will never fall away. The wording he uses is not simply, I'm not going to fall away. The exact wording he uses brings out that he's emphatic, he's adamant. I will never fall away. Jesus, this is never going to happen. And like Peter, people all the time contradict what Jesus says. Do you argue with God? God tells us a lot of things in his word about ourselves. He tells you and I that we are sinners. His word emphasizes how weak we are, how dependent upon God we are. He tells us that we are to guard ourselves spiritually. He tells us that apart from him, we can do nothing. He tells us to take heed lest we fall. But yet, is it not true that a lot of times we just wave off these warnings as being something we don't really need? You and I think of ourselves as strong, and we proudly dismiss these warnings as applying to others. Yeah, there are others out there who are weak in their faith and in their walk. And in moments of such prideful reflection, we are flat out contradicting what the Lord says, what he has said to you. His warnings and instruction are not only for others, they are for you. And like you, Peter made the point of distancing himself from others. He revealed an attitude of superiority over the other disciples. He tells Jesus, though they fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And his attitude is that what Jesus is saying applies to others, but not to him, which is an extremely dangerous attitude. He's saying to the Lord, I'm different than the rest. Don't categorize me with them. And and don't you and I tend to do the exact thing. Same thing, we, we think, I'm different than others. I may have my weaknesses, but I'm not weak like them. I'm not capable of doing what they do. We compare ourselves with others, and inevitably we come back with a high opinion of ourselves. And Jesus responds by telling Peter more specifically what's going to happen. Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus uses this word truly, an expression that means you can be sure that what I am saying is true. The expression is sometimes translated truly, truly, or verily, verily, or assuredly. And so Jesus is telling Peter, it's gently, but yet bluntly, you're wrong. And Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, and 
He specifically tells Peter what he is going to do this very night before the rooster crows. You will deny me three times. The Jews divided the night into four parts. There was evening from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., midnight from 9 to 12, cock crow from 12 to 3, and then morning from 3 to 6. And this third period, referred to as the cock crow period, got its name from the fact that typically roosters would begin to crow at the end of that period around 3 o'clock in the morning. If you have roosters, you probably are familiar with that. Well, Jesus was thus telling Peter this very night, before three in the morning, you are going to deny me three times. And how it must have grieved the Lord's heart to know that. And how great it would have been if he was wrong. But of course he was right. Three times Peter disowned his Savior. Jesus has now twice predicted this falling away. And I feel almost embarrassed for Peter in light of what does happen when he still insists that he will be loyal. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And we feel like grabbing Peter by the shoulders and telling him to wake up, listen to what the Lord is saying. Peter should have been weeping in repentance instead of making such prideful claims. And yet, before we come down hard on Peter, let us not forget the end of verse 35. And all the disciples said the same. All of them. Peter is the one, yes, he spoke first. He was speaking for the group, and no one called him down for the things that he said. All of them stood up for themselves and contradicted the Lord. All of them were like Peter. Why? Why were they saying these things? in direct contradiction to the Lord's prediction. It's pride. It, they thought way too highly of themselves. They were sure that they were strong and committed, and they thought their love and devotion to Christ were greater than they were. They thought their spiritual strength to handle temptation was greater than it was. And does this not explain how later in the garden they will be sleeping? Remember, instead of watching and praying, lest they enter into temptation like Jesus instructed, They were trusting far too much in themselves. They didn't really know themselves. They were blind to their own weakness and ignorance. All of the disciples were this way, and you and I are also by nature. Do you really know yourself? If you're trusting yourself to be faithful to God, you don't really know yourself. If you're thinking that you don't need to be in the word and prayer to be a strong Christian, you don't really know yourself. You don't know the depravity of your own heart. You don't know yourself as Christ does. When you know yourself in the light of Scripture, you'll be much more careful about where you go and the things you see and the people you hang out with. And you will know that the possibility of giving in to temptation is very real. And you will know that just having the right intentions is not enough. Having brought out the reality of our sinful, depraved nature, I want to in this sermon on a positive note, because I believe the Holy Spirit has given this passage not to discourage us, but actually to encourage us. For consider this, Jesus knew not only what sin the disciples were capable of doing, he knew what they in fact would do, and yet he didn't reject them as his disciples. He out of pure grace saved them by giving himself to the death of the cross. And in time he sent a spirit the hearts of Peter and the others to see their sin, to see that they are to always trust in him. He did return to his disciples after his resurrection, exactly as he said, and he returned to them as their savior and they as his people, for he loved them always. 
Again, not because they were perfect. He loved them even as he loves us while we were yet sinners. In fact, he loved us so much that he died for us. And it's exactly because of that love for you that you must now take the practical lessons of this passage to heart, which at the very heart of it is humbly seeking Christ's strength to be obedient before him. Jesus died to save us not because we are obedient, not because we are strong in faith, but exactly because we do things like what the disciples did. Because we are proud, sinful people who deny our Lord. And the truth is we cannot take care of ourselves spiritually. We cannot stand strong against sin on our own. We need Jesus. So turn then to him with renewed trust, turning away from all trust in self. And as you reflect on Christ's love toward you as a sinner out of gratitude, be renewed in your commitment to do your best to follow Christ's ways and to live righteously. When Peter told the Lord, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you, Peter meant what he said. Right? He meant what he said. He loved the Lord. He at that moment had no intention of denying Christ. And as believers, you also love the Lord Jesus. You have every intention of serving him faithfully. But if you are trusting in yourself, good intentions are not enough. Prideful trust in your own goodness is always going to result in disaster. Combine your good intentions with humble trust in Christ, his saving work, his righteousness. Live every day in humble, prayerful reliance on him. That is how you will have victory over sin, to the glory of God's grace. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would forgive our pride, which blinds us to our weakness, makes us think that we are better and stronger than we really are. And thank you for this reminder that we need to hear again and again that any goodness in us is entirely what you have worked in us by your grace. May we set aside all trust in ourselves and may our trust be entirely in you, you who are the only source of righteousness for us. And as we are reminded this morning of our weakness, we know that we we need to be studying your word and praying more. Strengthen us, we pray, as we use these tools that you have given us for growth. We, We plead with you to keep us from sin. Enable us to be faithful, bold witnesses for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.